Welcome to Communicore Weekly. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. We allow many of our animals to roam freely. However, they are not tame. Please use caution. It's time for Disney History! Disney's Animal Kingdom, despite being a full-day park, is not the first... <laughs> full-day park... <laughs> is not the first time that the Walt Disney Company allowed guests to see wild animals in a realistic recreation of their natural habitat. Shut up, George. In fact, years before Animal Kingdom even existed, even though it's awesome, there was another park that afforded guests a similar experience. When Walt was first seeking out the perfect place for Walt Disney World, he flew over some parcels of land to get a feel of the area from above. Rumor has it that on one of these many, many flybys, Walt fell in love with a tranquil 11-acre island located in the middle of Bay Lake, so much so that Walt decided that this was the perfect place to build his new kingdom on the East Coast. The island has a colorful history. From around 1900 to 1937, it was known as Raz Island, named after the family that lived and farmed on it. Not long after, Delmar Nicholson purchased the island for $800 as a home for his family. Delmar, who was also known as Radio Nick, was Florida's first radio DJ, as well as a botanist and avid outdoorsman. Delmar renamed the island Idol Bay Isle and lived there with his wife and their pet Sandhill Crane. <laughs> the Nicholson family grew a wide variety of fruit and plant life, which they sold to local markets. After living there for almost 20 years, Delmar's declining health forced him to sell the island to a group of local businessmen as a hunting retreat. The property was again renamed, this time to Riles Island, and it wasn't until 1965 that Disney actually bought the island. Walt had some big plans for this little getaway and renamed it Blackbeard's Island. However, when Walt Disney World was opened in 1971, the island sat unused until April 1974, when it was given the new name of Treasure Island. In the spirit of the original name that Walt had given it, the island had the fictitious distinction of being a pirate's hideaway, complete with shipwrecks, buried treasure, and all other pirate stuff hidden throughout. It also borrowed some elements from the live-action Disney film of the same name. Treasure Island remained this way for quite some time until a major renovation closed it in early 1976. This transformation of the island caused it to lose much of its pirate theming. Close to 50,000 cubic yards of soil were brought in to help expand its size. Flowers, trees, and plants from all over the world were added to change the island into a tropical paradise. When it was reopened in April 1976, it had a new name, Discovery Island. The island was now home to Avian Way, a walkthrough attraction that featured exotic birds from all over the world. It even had its own snack bar, the Thirsty Perch. To visit Discovery Island, you had to take a boat from either the Contemporary or Polynesian resorts, and it required a special adventure ticket to gain entry. Extremely educational in nature, it wasn't a big hit with the crowds. In an effort to draw more attendance to the island, Disney added other forms of wildlife to its makeshift habitat. In June 1978, new exhibits based on the American alligators and uh, tortoises were introduced. Despite being an overlooked attraction, Discovery Island was also an important exercise in wildlife conservation. 
Disney was awarded several special honors for their work in preservation and breeding of many exotic animals on Discovery Island. In fact, they were the first in the world to breed a toco toucan, an extremely rare form of toucan, actually in captivity. At one point, more than 140 different species of animals, ranging from beautiful butterflies to the fierce bald eagle and even a few primates, and over 250 species of plants inhabited the island, many of which were on the verge of extinction. Because of their work in educating the public, their success in conservation, Disney was granted accreditation by the American Zoo and Aquarium Association in 1979. Legal troubles in 1989 marked the beginning of the end for Discovery Island. Disney came under scrutiny when the island's director and four employees were charged with mishandling some wild birds and vultures. They were also accused of shooting falcons and hawks, known predators to some of the island's inhabitants, and destroying their nest. Disney argued that the employees were merely trying to relocate the animals, but with disastrous results. They soon settled the case and updated their policies on animal care, but things just weren't the same after that. When the Animal Kingdom opened in 1998, it further hurt Discovery Island's status. Animal Kingdom and Discovery Island shared the similar theme of bringing the wildlife of the world to guests' feet. Animal Kingdom had the advantage of being much more easily accessible than Discovery Island and had a wider variety of things to do, but not that many really. Discovery Island's attendance rates were already low, but they suffered a greater hit with the Animal Kingdom now open. That's because it was a full day, so more people were spending a full day there than having to spend a half day at Discovery Island. Because it took so long to get from the parking lot to, uh, well, never mind. Yeah, yeah, to Discovery Island. But Animal Kingdom yeah. was easy. Anyway, so Disney official closed Discovery Island a year later, feeling that it had run its course. However, that was not the end, because rumors swirled around for years what, about what was going to become of the island. It was once thought that the island would return to being a tropical hideaway, a safe haven for guests who wanted to live out their own private paradise while visiting Walt Disney World. And for a time in the late 90s, Disney toyed with bringing the successful Myst video game to life on Discovery Island. Guests would have been transported to the island to explore and solve the riddles of Myst for themselves. But by 1999, the expense and practicality of turning Discovery Island into a highly detailed and special effects-laden experience for such a small group of guests ultimately sunk that concept. The island remains mostly empty. Its only inhabitants are a few birds who took up residence since everyone else left. Other than a few urban explorers, there are no visitors. However, with its prime location in the middle of Bay Lake and its gorgeous surroundings, it won't be long before people are once again visiting Discovery Island. You know, Jeff, although rumor has it that Disney is bringing back the island as the ultimate Rick Astley experience, because he will never give you up. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Disneyland Then, Now, and Forever by Bruce Gordon and Tim O'Day, released in 2005, and it's 192 pages. This book quickly jumped into my list of favorite Disney-related books. Published to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Disney's inaugural park, Disneyland Then, Now, and Forever looks at the history of Disneyland with a rather unique twist. It replaced the traditional souvenir guides that you could purchase at the parks. Earlier guides were presented as a companion to your vacation. Usually they saw minimal changes throughout the years. Uh, in this instance, it is so much more. The unique aspect is that it takes us through the past five decades at the Disneyland Resort. Not only do we look at the attractions, but we see the traditions of Disneyland as they have changed and progressed throughout the years. 
This book is also one of the first sources to show you what attractions existed before the current ones. Take the section on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. It covers every attraction that stood in that area since the beginning of the park. Big Thunder, the Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland, Rainbow Cameron Mine Train, and the Stagecoach and Pack and Mule Trails. Full color, full page photos that show the attractions, the ride vehicles, and the landscaping. It is a wonderful way to look at Disneyland, and you really get a better sense of how the park was arranged and how it has evolved through the years. As a Disney enthusiast, my only criticism is also one of the book's main strengths, the layout. Like previous publications that the late Bruce Gordon has created, Disneyland Then, Now, and Forever is artistically and stylistically beautiful. The modern page layouts are inviting and attractive. The information is presented in a readable and entertaining format. Yes, the artwork is one of a kind and was, in, in some instances was never before published, but I kept longing for larger shots and less large-scale pictures that got lost in the fold. I know, I know, I can't have everything. It's almost shocking, though, to run across a shot of Tomorrowland with wide avenues and not a current building in sight. And seeing where the park has been and where it now is is wonderful. I can almost imagine the excitement that guests of the past felt walking towards the Moonliner rocket. The book offers plenty of surprises, concept art, the infamous ride posters, rarely seen photos, intriguing secrets, and some less secret secrets. All in all, this book offers something for everyone, even if you're a Walt Disney World only fan. Seeing Disneyland presented with such love and excitement will open your eyes to the Magic Kingdom's older sibling. Remember, there would be no Walt Disney World without the successes of Disneyland. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's a debate who's gone. Recently, Disney appointed Kathy Mangum to the newly created position of executive producer for Disney World, and she's uh, hot off the heels of her recent work at Cars Land at Disney California Adventure, where she was a vice president of Imagineering. And you know, Jeff, this has sort of got people in the internet world for Disney kind of excited and frightened at the same point, because does this mean we're going to get Cars Land in Orlando? I, I hope not. I, I mean, as much as Cars Land is being a huge success out in California Adventure right now, I would rather they not duplicate uh, that exactly and just bring it here. Granted, it, it was made for a park that was struggling and had no really good theme or anything to, you know, tie it together, which is needed for a park over on this coast, uh, a.k.a. Disney's Hollywood Studios, <laughs> but... Even though Cars Land would, would fit into the theme there because, you know, it is a movie park and that is a movie franchise, I'd prefer them to do something else for Hollywood Studios, something new, something more creative, and, uh, I mean, the size and scope of Cars Land is perfect, but I just don't want them to replicate Cars Land piece by piece, I'd rather something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand the company's need to take a hot property and reproduce it in another theme park because, honestly, that's inexpensive and uh, look at Soren. As much as you may not like it, Jeff, it still commands two-hour waits, uh, even though it's got problems because there's not enough to do at Epcot. Well, it's it's two-hour waits because, you know, it takes forever to load people yeah, that's true. or get off. <laughs> that's and, true. You know. But wait a minute, this isn't about Soren. Yeah, We've sorry. already done that. Sorry, we've done that. Um, anyway. But, you know, I even remember hearing a few weeks ago uh, people started talking about the possibility of bringing Cars Land to the Disney Hollywood Studios, and I sort of cringed. I mean, they've got that great Pixar area. Why not expand that, uh, you know, 
California, they're close enough to visit Emeryville. You know, we're not. And it's that same thing we talked about previously with the Western River Expedition. It would have been great to have something from the, you know, Old West out here as opposed to Pirates, even though Pirates is great. But I'd like to see them expand. And, you know, what really excites me is they finally have somebody from Imagineering that's, uh, they gave her the title executive producer. So she sort of has that final say what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. And, you know, everybody's still talking about Cars Land. But I imagine if we get the chance to visit Disneyland, in case anybody listening wants to sponsor a trip for both of us, we'd love it. Um, I think both of us would be blown away more by Buena Vista Street than anything else because the attention to detail. And that's, I think, what I'd like to see them bring back to Walt Disney World, cohesion and some major attention and major love. I I have to, yeah, I definitely have to agree with that one there. Um, And you know what? Now now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sure... I'm sure Hollywood Studios is going to get something eventually, but she was probably brought over to oversee whatever they're going to eventually do with Animal Kingdom. Whether, you know, I don't know what they're going to call it now, but we'll call it Avatar Land for now. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are are pretty reserved about that judgment at the moment as well, but a lot of people who I know dislike the Cars movie really like Cars Land in general just because they think it's a great addition to the park. So. I don't, I don't like the Avatar movie. It wasn't that good. But I won't reserve judgment for Avatar Land until I see what they come up with because they can come up with some pretty amazing things as far as we know. So mm-hmm. I'd, oh, I'd be excited to see what she does to it as long as she just doesn't replicate Cars Land exactly and just plop it over here. Exactly. And that's what, you, like you said, everybody just raves about how beautiful and immersive it is. And I think that's that's something I'd like to see at the Disney Hollywood Studios is something that's really is immersive. And I think they could build out. There's plenty of space. And you're right. If she takes over the production of Avatar Land, which obviously she will with her position, there might be a cohesive vision and the ability to create something spectacular. I mean, look at pretty much everything Disney's done recently has been they've been knocking it out of the park which yeah. is great they've stepped up their game everything's been fantastic the intention to detail that we've seen with storybook circus buena vista street uh the little clips we've seen of fantasy land the fantasy land expansion it, it looks amazing so it's absolutely amazing we i i'm assuming we both agree that her bringing bringing her over here is a good thing i think so i think so so it wasn't much of a debate no it was more but like a discussion a, of a news item yeah a good agreeance between friends Really? We're friends? Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. (laughs) Longtime Haunted Mansion fans are quite fond of their guide, the ghost host, as he is the one who guides them through the mansion. But during its developmental stages, the ghost host was to take the form of a raven and been a more physical presence throughout the ride. This was because the raven, in many cultures, has long been associated with death. In fact, this came so close to being that the raven does exist inside the mansion at many points. In the conservatory, in the seance room, in the ballroom, right outside the attic, and just before the end of the ride. Be sure to wave hello the next time you see him. Thanks so much for watching. Be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes. And you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And of course, you can always see what we're up to on Twitter at Imaginerding and at Jeff Heimbuck. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we're from Mice Chat. 
Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly. Hegemony.